This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 8th, 2021, the Midnight Train from Georgia edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined from New Haven by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes is back from somewhere. He was gone last week doing something cool. Can you tell us what it was, John? Uh, sure. Since I think we're going to talk about it in one of our topics, or talk about parts of it anyway in one of our topics, I interviewed John Boehner about his new book, um, his peppery new book, um, and his time in Congress and what's wrong with Congress today. Oh, that is yeah. why we're doing that topic, I guess. Well, I mean, it, it informs that topic, which is sure. in news. It's perfect. Sure. It's like well we done. timed it. Well done. Minimize Airing work. this Sunday on CBS Sunday morning. Okay. Today on GabFest Thursday evening, we'll talk about whether it makes sense for corporate America to boycott Georgia in the wake of its terrible new voter law. Then Congressman Matt Gates. Why does politics seem to reward shamelessness so lavishly these days? Is there any way to stop it? What is wrong in particular with Congress? And apparently, John Dickerson had an interview with John Boehner that will inform that. Then we're going to talk to Amanda Ripley about her stunning new book, High Conflict, which, if you read it correctly, may be the first piece of good news about America's divide that at least I have read in years. Maybe. Emily was sort of, maybe, maybe. I wasn't Maybe. thinking about it in those terms. I like that framing. Let's go with it. Um, but hey, but before we get started, I just have to tell you about a funny encounter that I had this week. I wanted to run it by you guys to get your thoughts on it, okay? And you, dear listeners, which is that I was, so <laughs> oh, I was God. walking. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I was walking in DuPont Circle. It was a busy weekend day in DuPont Circle, and a woman was driving a large SUV, and she had fronted into a parking spot that a guy in a Tesla was waiting to back into. And the guy in the Tesla freaked out. He got out of his car. He walked back to the SUV. He started banging on it and screaming and saying she'd stolen his parking space and other things that are not sayable on a family podcast. And the woman by this time was out of the car and she started screaming back at him and threatening to call the cops. And I'm walking by and there's an elderly couple walking right in front of me and they stop and the man says, please, please, let's not get violent. Can we... Can I help here? And the guy is really, really old. He is, he's so old that he's like due all the respect that people give to the old. And so both the man and the woman seem chastened and they nod. And he said, all right, I'd like to ask a couple of questions. So if this parking space were two spaces long and she had pulled into the front space that you were waiting to back into, would you think that that was acceptable? Would you have then backed into the second place further behind you? In other words, did your property right in here to the front space or to any space that you could back into. And while I'm here, I have a second question. Let's say you were on the phone for a second and paused to answer a text before you backed into that space. Did your right to that parking space disappear during the time it took to answer that text? 
What if you had made a five-minute phone call then or a 10-minute phone call then? Would your right to that space ever be lost? And at this point, the guy in the Tesla just threw up his hands and said, I don't have time for this. He got in his car and he drove off. And the old man turned to the handful of us who had been watching this and he said, the case is moot. And he turned to the woman he was with and he said, God, I miss it so much already. And he walked away. And this woman from the white SUV called after him, thank you, Justice Breyer. So, David, if the, if the story ends with him... none of this happened. If the fantasy story ends with Justice Breyer missing it so much already, I feel like you haven't given him the proper incentive for the outcome you're searching for here. I mean, you miss it when you retire, but... I, I feel like we just had to endure David's vocal exercises, and I'd like to stage an intervention. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, John. David is feeling very spacious in his <laughs> Justice Breyer narratives. If, at current rates, the entire <laughs> show is going to be the Justice Breyer narrative. <laughs> that is just definitely true. That'll make Def- it easy for you and me. Definitely we'll just like, wake oh up at the end. Oh, my God. I lost By the you way, at the, I lost listen, you at the none Tesla. of that happened. None of that happened. Oh, yeah, by the way. Justice Breyer has not resigned his seat (laughs) on the Supreme Court, mysteriously. But he did this week pop his head up from uh, his um, Oh, he has Justice Breyer news now, And he said uh, that that they shouldn't increase the number of people on the court. I saw that. Um, They shouldn't. They should decrease it. He should resign. (laughs) And then they can increase it back to the number that's set at. All right. Fine. I'll keep it shorter next week if he hasn't resigned. <laughs> but it's a, just a threat to him. We have talked about the wave of voter suppression legislation that's racing through state legislatures controlled by Republicans. Georgia has passed the first major constricting law, SB 202, SB 202, which did a whole bunch of things. It tightened absentee voting, it limited drop boxes, and particularly in areas where there are a lot of Democratic voters. And to me, most alarmingly, changed the composition of the state election board in a way that makes it very much easier for it to be tinkered with for, for the election board to end up overriding certain results if they want to. Hmm, uh, certain results. I wonder what prompted that measure. Hmm, I don't know. Who was just complaining a lot about the election results in Georgia and asking the Secretary of State, who is no longer on that board, to find him some votes? Hmm, and, the, and the Lieutenant Governor of Georgia on CNN basically just said, you know, I went back and, and looked at where all of this energy for voting uh, reform came from. And it really was when Rudy Giuliani came down a- after the election and met with a bunch of committees and t- talked for two hours spreading lies about the election. This is the Republican Lieutenant Governor, um, uh, Jeff Duncan of, um, of Georgia. So yeah, affirming your point, Emily. Yeah. Well, so we, I think we have the two issues here. We have the issue of the law, and then we have the issue of a corporate and other response to the law. Coke and Delta, both big Georgia companies, have very belatedly, ex post facto, condemned this new law. Major League Baseball, in the highest profile, action, moved its all-star game from Georgia to Colorado in response to public pressure from a group led by, I think, led by former American Express CEO Ken Chenault. So do you guys think, uh, I mean, let's, let's, let's start with the, the law and move to the corporate response, which is, you know, this law is just going to be the first of many, right, Emily? And, and, what's, and what is most alarming about it? Is it, the, is it the voter restrictions or is it the change in the composition of the board? Well, the change in the composition of the board and the sort of politicization of handling the results in Georgia alarms me because we it it 
creates a scenario in which the answer to the questions of let's throw the November 2020 election into disarray and uncertainty, the answer could be different. I think it's important to remember here the work that the Office of Secretary of State did in Georgia and other states to kind of neutralize that threat. That's an elected office, but it is tend to be held by someone who is in a more kind of civil servant position. And that really mattered in Georgia. And Brad Raffensperger, like, took a lot of hits for it from the Republican Party. And now we've seen him and his office stripped of power. So I think that is really worth worrying about, even though it's the more it's the after the election problem. The the election voting problem is also, I think, of concern. And, you know, there was a lot of debate in the last week about how much um, access and making voting easier matters in terms of turnout and partisan makeup. It is true that, you know, universal vote by mail in the states that have it, like Colorado and Washington and Utah, hasn't created this surge in voting. It's associated more with like a 2% increase, and it's not clear necessarily what the partisan implications are. But if you care about Democratic participation, and you also have your eye on the long the, the long game here, and you're just trying to create an America in which people find voting convenient and easy, and maybe that helps on the margin attract more of them, that seems like those are good things. We don't really know how it plays out yet in states that haven't had universal vote by mail. And so that in particular bothered me. And then there are other things like not giving food and water to people on long lines, which just seem like, you know, mean spirited and kind of Dickensian. The change in the in what the legislature can do after the results come in is the most dangerous because the other changes let's say they go through, you can mobilize voters to deal with the new laws. You can, and and as you said, it's unclear what impact this really has on turnout. There's some scholarship, which we've talked about before, which suggests that the, that the group being denied its rights or having them constrained actually turns out more because they feel threatened. But that's something, that's a problem you can see coming. The dark of night uh, changes in the, you know, I mean, look at w- what happened in Georgia after this election, which was all out in the open. There were recordings. You had Republicans standing up and it still was uh, a lot of people were watching and thinking that that something might happen and the vote might flip somehow because of of Republican pressure. And this creates a permission structure and a pathway to have that happen. And it would happen in a less transparent way. That seems to now. I'm not saying this is what's led to the public debate. I think and the public pressure. I think the other stuff about access to voting and, and absentee ballots and all of that is probably what's more fueled the public uh, backlash. Are there good examples, Emily, of subversion by state legislatures or by state election boards where, in this country, where elections have been overturned because of of interventions that were really out of bounds? a good question. I can't think of one off the top of my head. I mean, I'm sure they exist, right? But this usually, I'm trying to think if there are any statewide examples of that. I can't. Well, the election of, of 1824, oh, thank which you, was John. thrown into the House of Representatives. Um, and Jackson's supporters thought that there was basically a side deal between Henry Clay and John Quincy Adams. And that was a backroom deal where the legislature essentially stole the election from the 
winner. I mean, one way to think about this is when Trump was pressuring um, Republicans to somehow change the election results, he had much more success with legislators than he had with other elected officials. I mean, there were a lot of people who were ready to line up for that. Now, it didn't happen. And so we didn't see that that barrier actually broken. But the more you create the conditions for it, the more possible it is. Where where do judges stand in this in this uh, chain in this Jenga this Jenga tower do judges offer are they a are they an obstacle to this to legislators acting or not really I mean it depends what the law says if the law gives the power to this per- these people for the state board of Georgia chosen by the legislature a judge isn't going to say like no you can't do it that way I just wonder if they if you, if restriction if the distortion of democracy reaches some level, will judges, even judges who are conservative or Republican judges, will they stop it because it it violates some fundamental principle that people, you know, that the results of elections need to be honored? I mean, when you had these after the fact challenges to the election results by the Trump campaign and others, judge after judge turned them away. And that included a lot of Republican appointed judges. However, we do have this real problem in our constitution, which says that the legislature can change the way we pick the president, right? Now, it looks, everyone, everyone, the mainstream interpretation of that is the legislature would have to do it before the election. So after everybody voted, the legislature couldn't swoop in and say, actually, you know, Trump won instead of Biden. But technically, in the Constitution, the legislature could just decide, we're going to pick the president for our state this year and, and the electoral votes, not the voters. And that is not something the judges can fix. It's there that would in the be text. wait so amazing. So like Pennsylvania's legislature and Wisconsin's legislature could have said in in June, you know what, we're we're just not going to have the popular election this year. It doesn't seem like a good year to have it. Mm-hmm. Let our state legislature will choose because it's pandemic, so we'll just do it. Yeah, that would have been. Yeah, that would have been wow. And yeah. I mean, the only reason that that, that is going to happen, that will happen soon, might not happen, <laughs> is that you know a lot of these things are done. With the under a pre, you know, you need a pretext. You can't just, I mean, obviously, Presumably. Pre- yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I guess my point is that 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 all pretext would be gone then, and I think even you know that that might be harder to pull off. But what's so, what's at issue here is the is whether is is I mean, there is a little bit of a pretext, but of course, it's it's flimsy. Um, so, John, I want to turn to the corporate piece of this. Atlanta famously was the city too busy to hate. It made a big deal of itself in the civil rights movement when it 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 was relatively progressive on civil rights issues because it it was we're going to we're going to be a great place to do business and it was associated with the rise of the new south. We have in this moment two of the biggest Georgia companies, Delta and Coca-Cola, condemning this law, but only condemning the law after it has passed effectively. What do you make of this corporate involvement and what do you make of the kind of threats of that Mitch McConnell's making about woke capitalism and Republicans being outraged by corporations condemning this law? I mean, to me, sorry, I'm fine. You're allowed to ask a question. I tend to ask you this question. I tend to ask you the question. It's that I'm struck by the like the incredible weakness of the response of corporations rather than the their, them standing up. I mean, they really waited till everything was done. They did not try to do anything. They corporate American corporations do not want to be the the bulwarks of democracy. That is not their job. They don't they don't want to have that role. And 
if they're put in a position where they, you know, have to rise up feebly and defend voting rights, they'll do it, but they really don't want to be there. Right. Well, why, you know, and arguably, why should they? I mean, do we the even reason- want them to be there? That's right. So obviously, the Mitch McConnell line is, is, uh, is at odds with his previous preferred position on the, the corporations and their financial donations and how that constitutes speech and is therefore protected. Mm, um, indeed. And, and in fact, should be encouraged. So when speech in the form of money benefits you, but you don't like speech in the form of actual speech, actual words coming out of the mouth, um, then you're, you're, you have an internal contradiction to your position. Um, and the reason that matters is not just, oh, everybody's a hypocrite, is that part of the problem here for the Republican Party is they have a very weak case. They are losing this case, the case being, do we need to change and reform the election laws? And why are they losing it? A, there's no evidence that it happened. So this is a solution without a problem. B, it happens in the wake of Donald Trump's presidency, which exacerbated racial tensions in America and which specifically exacerbated them in the wake of George Floyd's uh, death. The reason that's a problem is that politically it turned the suburban voters against Trump and the Republican Party. And Trump pressed a lot of the old buttons playing on racial fears, saying that Cory Booker was going to be in charge of suburban housing policy. And those buttons didn't work. The fuse was broken. That's a problem for the Republican Party, which has the taint of Donald Trump, who is still around and who has created a market for this kinds of behavior. So the Republican Party has both a fact problem, which is that there's no there's no evidence that there was fraud. And they have this political hangover problem from President Trump. I think Mitch McConnell's response represented a weakness of their case. And the reason this is a problem is the Republican Party is shrinking and relying on essentially white voters. And what the corporations are responding to is not their deep moral conscience. They're responding to the fact that their consumers are younger and more diverse. And guess what? That's what the future electorate's going to look like too. And so they are, what, what, what I think intrigues me about this is the signals that corporations are taking, just like with mask mandates. When there were other weird culture moments, corporations responded to the public And the Republicans were responding to their constituency. Well, if their constituency is small, they still have to to reply to them. We'll talk to this. We'll talk about this in our next segment. But for fundraising and to turn out in in contested districts. But that doesn't represent the larger American public. I'm also just a little confused about which issues the corporations feel like they have to take a position on and which they don't. And I mean, I totally think you're right about the younger, um, more diverse you know, composition of the consumer base versus the Republican electorate. But it, there, it, it, that can't only explain what's going on, right? I mean, I also wonder if part of what we're seeing is how is that more people who make decisions in executive suites in corporations want to be identified on the kind of like liberal or right side of history of these pressing social questions. Because you're seeing LGBTQ issues get this kind of treatment, voting rights. I mean, to me, that's like a great addition to the tapestry because it matters a ton and has this element of racial justice. And then a little bit of reproductive rights and justice because we saw some uh, filmmakers threaten to pull out of Georgia when they were passing an anti-abortion bill. I think that was like 2018 or 19. So it's just an interesting array of issues. Well, the filmmakers is different, it seems to me, than the filmmakers lines up, it feels like to me, to our old alignment of cultural gatekeepers being more liberal and individual members 
of that group making decisions. When the corporations are doing it, it does seem to me, and and who knows, they did it with the bathroom bill in North Carolina, the NBA pulled out of North Carolina for the All-Star game. What I guess the question we're playing with here is, is this a new, is this a one-off? Your point, Emily, like they just decided the, the idiosyncrasies of this moment are, or is there a new, I think what you, I think you're right, which is that there is a new effort to show, and I think this is in the wake of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matters movement, which is to show that corporations are doing something on a wide variety of areas. And that's important because of their employees and it's important because they want people to come work for them who are from this new, younger, diverse workforce. So it's now become a, a part of a series of things that corporations are trying to do to show that they are a more modern workforce. Um, and I think so that means it suggests that that this is here to stay. I mean, they did have to be well, shamed I, into it by the, the letter from the black executives calling on them for action. Right. That was part right. of their finally saying something. Sorry, David. Well, I, I'm I'm curious about whether which one of these movements will be more effective and more durable here or in Arkansas. I presume in Arkansas, which has just overridden the governor's veto of this appalling trans discrimination bill, I assume there's going to be some kind of corporate boycott action pressure there. And I'm, I'm curious whether that's going to work or whether the one in Georgia, I mean, Georgia is such a big bustling business state. People are, Coca-Cola is not going to relocate out of Georgia. Delta is not going to relocate out of Georgia. It is, it is, you know, there will be fewer conventions in Atlanta, perhaps. But Georgia is such a big, successful, thriving business state. I just, I'm, I'm skeptical of the idea this is going to last beyond the news cycle. Whereas it, in Arkansas, where nobody actually does that much business, it will, people will be happy to take this moral stand and constantly condemn it until they actually change that law back. I mean, that was, you know, we saw some effect on reversing bathroom bills in, in Indiana, right? And I mean, Christy Nome, right, exactly. The governor of South Dakota just pulled back because she was worried about the NCAA, and rightly so. What I wonder is, um, obviously, the, the cry of cancel culture um, and woke culture has, has deep roots in the, in the Republican Party and conservative movement, which is it ties back to, we don't want these elites telling us what to do. But I wonder how voting rights, if that is maximally energizing, uh, clearly a lot of Republicans think that cancel culture as a, as a um, thing to talk about is, but does voting rights run the risk of bumping up against the problem that Donald Trump had, which is you actually lose some of your voters um, who see this as an attempt to basically limit the, the franchise for black and brown people, where there's a long history of that in the South, um, and where that can that could be that could backfire. Well, and there was I want to say some evidence for that in the bill, in the sense that both with drop off boxes and with early voting, the state changed the formula. So basically, there's more access in rural areas and much less in urban areas, and that is a way of actually like you know, tinkering with the racial composition of the vote, because it's the black people who live in the urban areas who now like have a tiny number of drop off boxes and the white people in the rural areas who got more boxes and more early voting. So it was like claiming to kind of make it equal, but it actually has this effect, which does like take away access to the franchise from black voters mostly. The drop boxes in Atlanta go down from, or in, in Georgia go down from 94 drop boxes across the counties uh, 
that make up the core metropolitan areas to 23. So 94 to 23 is, yeah. It's and the drop. drop-off boxes can't be outside anymore. They have to be inside a polling place, and they're only open during early voting hours. GapFest listeners, we are excited to tell you about our next live show on Wednesday, April 28th at 8 o'clock Eastern. The three of us are going to be live on Facebook and YouTube talking about the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration. So excited. We have not done one of these live shows in a few months. Obviously, we're looking forward to the day when we can get back in front of you in an audience. But for now, this is a great way for us to be together. So the live the live shows give you a chance to join the conversation. You can comment. You can chat. You can send us questions. And it's going to be a really delightful evening. So come out on April 28th. And this live show is presented by Lord Jones, who are makers of the world's finest CBD products. You have heard me talk about Lord Jones products before, but you'll actually get to see them and their beautiful packaging when you tune in this live GabFest on April 28th. And more good news, dear listeners, you get 25% off your first order at lordjones.com slash GabFest. So go to slate.com slash live. That's slate.com slash live for more information and links to sign up for the April 28th live GabFest. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame it was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Matt Gates, the callow, lascivious Florida Republican member of Congress, remains in office at the time of taping. He is under federal investigation for a possible sex crime against a girl. He's accused of all kinds of disgusting and illegal behavior both disgusting and illegal, and sometimes both disgusting and illegal behavior, including showing nude pictures to fellow legislators, setting up a point-scoring game in the Florida House all about seducing women, lobbying former President Trump for a blanket pardon, and then these criminal acts, which are which are we don't have a lot of details on because it's it's a FBI investigation and it's under wraps, but presumably that is some gross stuff. But he's still there. He is still there. Governor Cuomo in New York is still there, despite the women in New York State having accused him of some form of sexual misbehavior and harassment. Marjorie Taylor Greene is still there, despite her grotesque calls for violence against Democrats. She's still sitting in in the House. President Trump was there until he left. There is a kind of way in which shamelessness is now um, is now armor. Shamelessness is strength in 
politics? Is this new? Is it, or am I overreading a few examples? The shamelessness isn't new, but what you're put your putting your finger on is new and is um, I mean it's not brand new, but it um, and particularly in the in Congress is new. Politicians have always been shameless. It's just that because basically you have to go out and tell everybody you're better than everybody else and should be given this power. So that in and of its that in in itself is an act of hubris. But the thing is, it used to be that voters and your colleagues measured you by some store of virtue that you had, which which if for no other reason than to get elected and to climb the ladder, you had to stow away all of your um, personal awfulness because you wouldn't get elected if you, if you, you know, flapped your shiny ass out in public. Now. That is a weird prom- image. People flap, yeah. <laughs> you flap your ass out? <laughs> that is an expression. Really? No, no, I just totally made it up. You made yeah. it up? Um, well, I liked it. Continue so, on. So, um... So, but what's happened is that the basically the the routes to power have changed in, in Congress, in particular. And this is what John Boehner writes about in his book and in the excerpt that's already been published in Politico. Is um, the old way you you made your way in Congress by getting things done or by doing what the leaders of your party wanted to help get things done. Voters credited you if you passed bills. Leaders credited you internally if you helped them do what they wanted to do. And that's the way you could rise up. When you were able, particularly on the conservative side, although this is there's an emerging examples of this on the liberal side, it, when talk radio was uh, in its um, you know on the rise, social media now, um, members can make their own realities, and Gates is one of those perfect examples. They can create whoever they and and become popular by plugging into the base of their party. And the reason that they have more than just the power of the attention of the base, and that's quite important to have the attention of the base, is that that attention equals money. So they can raise money for themselves. They no longer need leaders of the party to put their finger on them and get them the access to cash, but they can raise it themselves by going on, you know, Hannity or or um, or in social media, and they can um, turn the base against the party leaders. So this is what, you know, Boehner was always complaining about. So what has happened is that the, and, and the way you, by the way, gain attention and money is by being shameless, by getting into big fights in a world of negative partisanship where the actual attributes of individual members are not important as much as the vitriol they can raise about the negative, negative parts of the other party, then um, shamelessness, in fact, is not a problem. It's a quality that's sought out for the purposes of attention getting and money raising, which are more important now than legislative right. achievement. Matt, Matt Gates has no yeah. successfully passed legislation that he sponsored, but he was on Fox News 179 times or has been on Fox 179 times since he's been in the House. Emily, sorry, I interrupted you. No, I think Matt Gates wants to be on Fox. Like, I think it's telling that in the Trump impeachment moment, he was ready to resign from Congress and represent Trump at the impeachment. I don't think he cares about being in the government. I think his long-term plan is all about the attention. And, like, he that's how he imagines himself and that that path is part of what we're seeing because that's all about notoriety and attention it's not about governing whatsoever as he said if you if you aren't making news you aren't governing which is the, the most you know yeah. 
um, backwards way of of um, of thinking about it, but it encapsulates perfectly what we're talking about. Can I add just one other quick, tiny quick thing? When Congress is flipping back and forth as much as it has, this is Francis Lee's, the, the political scientist's um, important work. When Congress is flipping back and forth so much, any legislation that you help the body produce goes to the benefit of the majority. So if you're in the minority, you, there's no incentive for you to help the majority out because that might help them keep power of, of the, the building. To get power back, you need to energize your base and be obstructionist. And so there is a way in which the overall makeup of the House and Senate, which has flipped a lot in the last 30 years, uh, it exacerbates this problem and encourages the behavior of those who can be most publicly attention grabbing and money grabbing um, because it, it it benefits the system that that switches power. One of the things I want to get into, and this gets to your Boehner point, John, is that we grew up, uh, the three of us, in a world where there was a certain uh, cartoonish image of a politician that was to be condemned. And that kind of politician which is sort of Dan, I think of it as Dan Rostenkowski, is that it's corrupt sleazeball, like very much into pork barrel. Didn't he actually schmoozing. get indicted that one? Yeah, oh, yeah, he was a criminal. Okay. He was indicted a criminal. is bad yeah. still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, horse trading, susceptible to lobbyists, unprincipled, deal cutting. And, and then, and I, th- I think arrayed against that was this idea of an idealistic, uncorruptible public servant of some sort. Uh, a, 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 somebody who 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 wasn't wasn't going to be susceptible to the the swaying of it, and was more idealistic and and had a stronger set of beliefs that they would stand up for. And it turns out that actually we, we've ended up with the worst of all possible worlds. That neither of those is where we've ended up with. We've ended up with the the balance of power being held by people who are totally corruptible and sleazy, but really not interested in deals deals and not interested in doing the work and the legislation, which at least the old corrupt guys were there for. And this is because, you know, there's like a whole bunch of reasons for it. It's like the end of pork barrel politics, the nationalization of politics, the rise of the totally safe seat and the gerrymander totally safe seat. And and then the kind of the rise of a cynical voter, a cynical nihilistic voter who doesn't really believe in politics anymore. Like we used to, many, many fewer Americans believe in politics than used, they used to. People used to actually believe in the principles of politics and believe in, like, understand how it worked and accept that that was sort of how stuff happened. And the, the percentage of Americans who, who, if you survey, and Jonathan Rausch has written about this really smartly, if you survey the people who, kind of, people who just basically don't believe politics works at all and that all politics is to be thrown out has been rising steadily, steadily, steadily. And when you have people who don't believe in politics and it meets up with people who are totally shameless, you end up with kind of a Congress that is not filled with Matt Gaetzes, but where there are enough Matt Gaetzes to just make the place a wreck. Well, and it's important to point out that there, the number of Matt Gaetzes there are in the world. I mean, Matt Gaetz is partially a, a function of the fact that social media and in fact some legacy media or whatever we want to call it is obsessed with these shiny characters. And that's, that's part of the media's yep. fault. And yep. that's a big problem. However, that almost doesn't matter because if Gates and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others have power and Jim Jordan and others have power within the party structure, 
which includes the the partisan media, then, as you point out, David, that's important because elections are now nationalized, which means it's no longer a conversation as much about your district as it used to be, but it's now about national issues. And so every district has some amount of national issues in its conversation, and therefore a national um, incendiary character can play in all the different districts. But I guess your point, David, was um, I, I think you're exactly right. And the, and and the, the, what happens, even though you have a small number of what these people Boehner calls knuckleheads, the pressure they put on on regular members who are trying to do the right thing is that those regular members, every vote is a purity test. So if they vote for something that has been built out of compromise or that might be characterized by a Matt Gates as being helpful to Democrats, they get a huge amount of grief at home and then have to worry about a primary in a party where so many districts are, are gerrymandered that, that your biggest political threat comes from the primaries. So even though there might only be, you know, a couple of dozen of these kinds of members, their, their influence over the entire uh, conference in the two parties is vast, but more in the Republican Party. Emily, is Andrew Cuomo a cousin of Matt Gates? Is Andrew Cuomo a totally different you know, different uh, species than Matt Gates. He he also cousin. remains. What in what way are they similar, and what are they? Why are they different? Well, I mean, I think the shamelessness about these different um, allegations against him, which are really stacking up and just like sticking there, you know, that is similar. I mean, this is reminiscent also of um, Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who stuck it out. And the other thing about Cuomo is like he's also I mean, I don't he's not he's he's Matt Gates is unserious. I don't think that's fair about Cuomo, but he has had these like really stupid conflicts, you know, like with Mayor Bill de Blasio. Um, he does a fair amount of like showboating. And I don't know, he's never been my example of some great principled um, statesman. So I guess I felt like skeptical of him before this. And then watching him stick through this, like, it does have a shamelessness quality to it. I will admit to being somewhat torn about this because I do think that you want to have some kind of due process before you force people into resignations. And that was something that bothered me about the Al Franken situation was that he resigned um, before there was any ethics investigation. And I don't think that's like a good model of people just being railroaded out before we really know what the evidence amounts to. I mean, so the question that's interesting with Cuomo and Northam is, is whether, you know, partisanship plus shamelessness is your armor, you know, that is essentially if you can be shameless long enough that people's partisan desires will and and will basically protect you. Um, and I mean, that's essentially what Donald Trump did with all of his with all the allegations against him. And so this is a new basically route to survival. Um, and I th and that is very different than than Matt Gates, which is a part of a systemic issue. But it's a new like it's a, n a new thing that politicians have to have in their utility belt. Slate Plus members, you get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and of course, bonus segments here on the GabFest every week. And of course, you also are supporting the work that we do here on the GabFest. It's only a dollar for the first month of Slate Plus membership. Sign up, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, and our bonus topic this week for Slate Plus is, do vaccinated people have a moral obligation to mingle, to go to movies, to go drink at bars? 
Are they obliged to do that now that they are safely vaccinated or not? Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to join. Amanda Ripley, maybe my favorite GabFest guest because she focuses on solutions to actual problems, really hard problems. So it is delightful to welcome her back to the GabFest and to celebrate the publication of her wonderful new book, High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. I read this book in draft months ago. I was blown away by it. Now I'm thrilled to see it. Uh, I hope climbing the charts, climbing the charts. It will, if it's not a bestseller, it definitely will be a bestseller. It's so good. It's climbing our charts already. I don't want to oversell it too much. But A, it's a really fun and interesting read with actual human beings and human stories in it. And B, it may just solve the most intractable problem of our times. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to live up to that, but hopefully it will. <laughs> uh, Amanda, welcome back to the GabFest. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. I love being on the show. So what is high conflict? What is a specific example of it that we will all know? And why is it so horrible? Okay, so high conflict can start out small, but it becomes over time all consuming. It takes on a life of its own. Usually it becomes an us versus them kind of conflict. Our brains behave differently. We start to make mistakes, big mistakes. And the most, maybe the most chilling thing I've learned about high conflict is that over time, everyone involved will eventually start to mimic the behavior of their adversaries. So the thing you got into the fight to stop, you will, you will probably start to do without realizing it. So that's high conflict. It should be familiar to anyone who follows American politics. It's also familiar, you may have heard of high conflict divorces. That's a thing. About 20% of divorces in this country are considered high conflict, where the conflict itself is the destination. It just keeps going and going and going. And no one really benefits except maybe the lawyers. But there's also high conflict companies, high conflict neighbors, (laughs) high conflict politics. So probably we've all witnessed it, if not been part of it. (laughs) If not made a career of fomenting it, <laughs> is what you mean. Or been sucked into it, or yes, or been a, a conflict entrepreneur. So before we talk about your solutions to high conflict, um, are there times in which it is correct and appropriate? So one thing I was scribbling in the margins as I was reading is that there's not a lot of room for radicalism in a deep rejection of high conflict People who really think that, you know, there is a terrible evil in the world and are willing to take dramatic steps to change it kind of come off as like unproductive and nutty, right? I mean, you're, you start with someone who was a big protester of genetically modified foods and he really went very far in the kind of ecotourism trajectory and then he decided... Ecoterrorism trajectory. Sorry, oops. <laughs> the ecoterrorism trajectory. And then he decided he was wrong. And, and in fact, like, he is wrong. There's a lot of science suggesting that, you know, genetically modified foods have helped feed people who otherwise might not have enough food, whatever their ills, and there are some. So anyway, I just wonder how you think about that, especially in this moment when I think so many liberals are convinced that high conflict is deeply necessary. 
See, what I love about this is I knew Emily would not let me get far without, and I literally, what are we in the first three minutes? I <laughs> she's figured named I'd the be. thing. <laughs> One person's eco-tourist is another's eco-terrorist, right? Um, exactly. There, I mean, look, that is a real tension, no doubt, within myself, within the book, and within everyone. Where is the line? It is a lot in my mind like fire, right? Like fire is an amazing power. So is anger. Anger's great. Conflict's great, but there's different kinds of fire, right? There's uncontrolled fire and there's fire you use to, to cook and warm yourself, right? So it's hard to place exactly where the line is, but in my experience, you know it when you see it. And the risk is that while high conflict is very motivating for sure, like it's very, very useful, the risk is you will start to work against the thing you hold dear. So as the environmental activist did, that you mentioned, or as the, the, the sort of novice politician who went into politics that I followed, went in to make it more inclusive and less toxic, and he made it less inclusive and more toxic, right? And he realized that, and then he changed what he was doing. So you can recover, but it's very risky, if that makes sense. Amanda, isn't the line that, because as you, as you say, and as Emily is saying, Conflict is crucial to adjudicating ideas and testing them, and you can't make progress if you don't have a battle of ideas. What kills them is when it gets into high conflict. Conflict good, high conflict bad. Isn't the distinction then between an argument that is that is engaged in for the purposes of either A, finding common ground, or convincing someone, versus an argument that is engaged in for the purposes of destroying someone, beating someone? Of, of, you know, putting them down into the deep shale. Because if I'm trying to convince you, I'm less likely to want to engage in high conflict because I know that it will, it will cause the, you know, automatic nervous reflex response. Is that a way to think about the line? Yes. And I think maybe the best analogy is in marriages, right? So in marriage counseling and in, you know, the John and Julie Gottman who've done, did the love lab and studied thousands of marriages, they talk about contempt, right? Versus anger. And I think that's true in politics too. It's certainly true. You know, I spent a lot of time talking to an Israeli psychologist who studies conflict named Aaron Halpern, really thoughtful guy. And he talks a lot about how anger is, is a really good sign because anger suggests you want to change the person. <laughs> you want to make them better. Hatred or contempt or humiliation I mean, there is a difference, right? Like you can feel it in yourself. You can see it in others. And, and like that suggests the only option is severing or annihilation. There's a different set of, to your point, a different set of expectations or aspirations from contempt versus anger. Anger is anger's great, but anger, you know, anger is not the entire solution to a conflict, but it's very motivating and that's all good. Amanda, you, you, in my first question, you kind of quickly uh, touched on American politics as having characteristics of high conflict. I, I want you to go deeper into that for us here. Like what exactly in American politics or in American sort of the, the, the divided America, what are the signs of high conflict that you see and the, ev the evidence of it? So the reason I wrote this book is that I just felt like I could no longer make sense of the world. Like, I didn't feel like as a journalist, I could keep doing what I was doing without just making the conflict worse. And I knew I needed to do something different, but I didn't know what it was. Once I started to learn from people who study conflict as a system, particularly intractable high conflict, 
it's like clicked into place. Like er, no, no more am I surprised by any headline. <laughs> like the behavior of people, the resistance to facts, the um, the the level of contempt, the uh, the devotion to group, the fear of the other. Those are all classic signs of high conflict. And everything you do to try to get out of high conflict usually makes it worse. That is the thing that probably comes up the most when I read about American politics. You know, when you think, well, if we could just impeach this president, then that'll make the conflict better, right? Like there's a certain logic that each side has and everything they do thinking, you know, and on the right, it's like, well, now Americans will see that Trump is a good guy. Look what he's done uh, with China or with the economy. And it doesn't, it has the opposite effect on the left, right? And so you, you have this total disconnect in realities, right? There's a few conditions that lead to high conflict pretty, pretty predictably, and we have those conditions. So one of them is the binary. Every, anytime humans are divided into two oppositional groups, we just, we behave really badly. Like it is not, it does not play to our best instincts. And that's what we've got because we've got this sort of bizarre winner-take-all political system. And anytime on top of that, you have charismatic leaders who frame things as humiliation or pundits, right? That humiliation is another <laughs> high risk factor for, for high conflict. So we, we've got a lot of those things, not to mention, you know, other sort of institutional uh, cultures that incentivize high conflict, like uh, social media, like a lot of news media, not all. Uh, so there's certain cultural norms that we have and incentives for conflict entrepreneurs to incite high conflict. So if you're rejecting impeachment, um, then where, like, once you have one side that is manipulating the system or standing for principles and really doing things that you think are deeply wrong or unjust. Are you saying that playing hardball just escalates the conflict? Like, I'm a little mixed up. So, you know, when you're talking about the the sort of people at large in a political system, I'm all for, like, trying to understand and having empathy and less, like, us versus them. And because otherwise, A, you lose any sense of neighborliness. We do all have to live together. And B, if you have any prayer of persuading people, I think you lose that too. But when you're talking about the people at the top of the system who really can be doing bad things, I like if you're taking away high conflict, I'm wondering what tools were left to fight them. Okay. Did First of all, let's go back. Did I reject impeachment? I thought that you were suggesting it was counterproductive. As we've seen, did it solve the problem? Well, I don't know what problem are we talking about. Right. So I'm not rejecting it. I do think you have to hold people accountable. I am just pointing out, be aware as you do it, that it will not reduce the conflict, right? So you're right. It's diabolical. Like, it's absolutely diabolical. It is a wicked, wicked problem. It's, you know, remember those Chinese yo-yos you get from, like, arcades where you put your fingers in and... I don't even know. Finger, 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 finger trap. Yeah, so, yeah. You put your yeah. fingers in. The more you pull, the worse it gets. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So yes, you're right. You have to hold people accountable, especially positions in, uh, of leadership. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it'd be good to do it in a way that doesn't actually hand your opponents a sort of trunk load of weapons. So if you humiliate people, for example, that's like Evelyn Lindner is just a psychologist who studies war, and she calls humiliation the nuclear bomb of the emotions. 
It is every high conflict you look at is about humiliation at some level, right? It's probably the most underappreciated. In fact, I think there should be humiliation beats at newspapers. Mm. <laughs> like it's the most underappreciated wow. force in, in politics. Great idea. You're right, Emily. I mean, it's it's a and I struggle internally with it as well. Uh, I don't I don't think it means that you don't hold people accountable. I think it means that this operates like a giant weather system. If you change something, you can change the whole system, but you want to get out of the grooves you're you just keep going in over and over and over again and take people by surprise and try to remove some of those weapons like humiliation. Right. You want to go further upstream. I mean, by the time you get to impeachment, aren't you so far down the road that 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 it really you, you're already in high conflict and you can't you can't get out of that. So it aren't aren't what you're trying to do, and maybe I'll turn this into a press question, is make us aware and inculcate habits of behavior that are further upstream in the way we think about things and the way we deal with our complicated issues so that we manage them in a better place than the way we manage them now, which is leads us inevitably to impeachment. By the time you get to impeachment, it's too late. So then the question is, how do we how do we identify people who are interested in something other than high conflict? And how do we, as members of the press, try not to dance around the outside of the fire and just point at it, but do something to lessen its temperature or whatever the metaphor is I'm using? For me, one of the ways I try to understand our problems is to come at them sideways or look at an analogy or an extreme outlier case, right? So one of the people I followed for the book is named Curtis Toller, who was a high-ranking gang leader in Chicago, who as a nine-year-old joined his first gang. Not long after that, his hero, a basketball star in Chicago, was gunned down in the street by a rival, what he believed to be a rival gang. And he spent years in a vendetta against the gangster disciples over this killing. Eventually, many things happened, too many to describe here, but he realized that the story he'd been telling himself about that, that true trauma and injustice was not, mostly not true. And the things he was doing to repair and seek revenge were mostly harming the things he cared most about. So now when he tries to help young men avoid having to spend 20 years in a vendetta like that, he talks about getting to the root cause. I, and I talk about this as investigating the understory. So in politics and as a journalist, what I try to think a lot more about, and I'm, you know, it's still something I'm trying to, to figure out is what is this fight really about? How can we ask questions that get to that? Will you tell the story of the crockpot? Yeah, so every divorce mediator has stories like this. They're, they're good fun. Um, but an example would be when a couple just goes to war over some possession that seems to outsiders pretty insignificant. Like, you know, the wife wants the crockpot, the husband wants the crockpot. And you can spend a lot of money on lawyers over a crockpot. Um, other examples are Legos, obviously anything involving money. Um, and so in, the, in this case, you know, once you start asking the right questions in the right way, you find out the wife wants the goddamn crockpot. Why? Because when she was a kid, crockpot every Sunday, her mom would make something in the crockpot. They'd smelled through the house. It made her feel 
like things were right in the world. And she had wanted to do that in this new home, but it just really never happened. She and her husband never cooked. Let's be honest. Now, why did the husband want the crock pot? Because she wanted it. (laughs) She wanted the whole divorce. So like, this is one thing he's not going to give up on. So once, once you know more about what it is you're fighting about, it's easier to figure out what really matters to you and what you can let go of. But investigating that understory of conflict is something I think we could get a lot better at as, as journalists. The crockpot has already worked its way into our family's conversations in the most useful way. <laughs> if you can immediately say it's not about the crockpot, it like resets the debate to be like, oh, well, let's go figure out what it is behind the crockpot. It's been so useful. I think I think <laughs> I got the crockpot in my divorce. Well done. Well played. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> um, I, I want to keep us on my country and our politics and what, what feels to be poisonous here. What are the, are there ways that you can see that can help us get out of high conflict? And are those ways only based on individual action? Are there any things which are group activities or which are which work at an institutional level rather than at each, each of us in our hearts doing something differently in our day-to-day life? Mm, yeah. So at an institutional level, the sort of policy wonky, as I'm among friends here, I'm among policy nerds, so I can, I can talk about this. You know, you want to you want to just do the obvious thing. Like you want to break the binary. We 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 cannot continue down this path. We know that in countries that have more proportional representation, ranked choice voting, multiple parties, we know those countries have less polarization, more trust, and even when your guy loses, you feel like the system is more fair, which it is. Alaska has done this, Maine has done this. There are every year bills in Congress to move in this direction. There's no reason we can't do more in this direction. It's not going to happen overnight, but that's just an obvious thing. Do not have two oppositional, like, look, come on. Nobody can, you cannot fit a country this size into two buckets. That doesn't make sense. I mean, the best research on American political thinking and opinion uh, by more in common sorts the country into six different buckets, right? Including the exhausted majority, my favorite particular category. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, so we need to, have more fluid, more nuanced categories. And that will automatically bring out better conflict instincts. Because, you know, anytime you can, you talk in us and them, and then there's a third group, it just complicates the conversation, right? So that's sort of an institutional thing. One thing that I've done already in my own life is to, is to try to identify the conflict entrepreneurs in my world. These are people who really delight in every twist of a conflict. You know, sometimes there are people at work who just, you know, come in and close a door and they're just like, you know, ready to ask you about the latest humiliation that you've suffered for your latest edit, whatever. And you know these people. I mean, I've probably been this person, right? Like, like this is not good. What if but you like, have no. one of those people in your head? <laughs> we all do. We yeah. all do. Yeah. yeah. The shit stir. Yeah. We all do. <laughs> right, right, right. How do we turn the volume down on the, the conflict entrepreneurs in our head? And sometimes it's, you know, the people I study with Curtis that I mentioned, the former gang leader, he literally moved across town. And he says, like, he never could have done what he did if he hadn't moved. And it just happened. An apartment opened up. He could afford to do that. But, you know, literally people couldn't find him, first of all. And second of all, when his cousin, who was really his business partner in the drug trade, was brutally murdered, he didn't know who did it. So it slows down the conflict, that distance. And of course, getting off social media or having very different feed on social media, which is my preference. Now, like I deal with people on Twitter very differently than I did. 
And so for some people, it's stop watching, you know, cable news. It's going to be different for different. A lot of people, it's like fire your lawyer. That's a lot of people. Um, so Wait, what do you mean? Fire your <laughs> so lawyer. I guess this is why I don't have a lawyer. What do you mean fire your lawyer? Who has <laughs> a lawyer? Well, so, so there are certain industries that are conflict entrepreneur driven. I mean, they're the incentives around conflict entrepreneurs, right? So, and there are a lot of lawyers, not all, not even most, maybe depending on the, I don't know, you, you all tell me, but like it, there are a lot of lawyers who are really part of that system who benefit from prolonging legal conflict, whether it's family law or business law or whatever. So Amanda, if you're, I keep thinking of the quote attributed to, I think it's Chesterton, don't argue with a fool, because you'll find out he's doing the same thing. <laughs> that as you get engaged in these conversations, you you start to mimic their behavior and it just declines into two fools arguing. On the question of how to convince people, I guess this goes to Emily's point about impeachment. If we're going upstream and you've got somebody in your family or in a reporting story or whatever who is seems intractable, who seems like a, a novice conflict entrepreneur or a wannabe conflict entrepreneur, how do you lower the temperature? Hmm. Um, asking questions seems to be one of the things. But what are the, give us a little toolkit. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think we should acknowledge that it's really hard. You know, there's a lot of tips online right now for like, how do you talk to people who think the vaccine is a chip? And, you know, I mean, and it's all like, oh, first you do this and you do that. And it's like, come on, seriously, this is really hard. This is really frustrating. It takes enormous practice and preparation, which is one thing I think is maybe useful to people to know. Like before you, if you're going to go into a conversation with someone in this, in, in a really, uh, over something that's very fraught, where they don't seem to be listening, and maybe you aren't either. You need to literally prepare and and think through what do I what do I love about this person? What do I hold dear about this person? There's a, a Zen Buddhist uh, met Norman Fisher, and I he has uh, relatives with whom he wildly disagrees about politics, and he tells me about their conversations, and I'm like Norman, how do you do this? How do you go into these rooms and have these conversations? You know, and he said, Oh, I tell you what, I do I have a trick. Before I go in, I remember we're all going to die. <laughs> um, and so, you know, yeah, then you want to go in super curious, like an anthropologist visiting a faraway land, not your country, right? Like really curious. And then you want to loop everything they say, like make sure you prove to them you've heard them, which at first was super uncomfortable for me because it felt like they would mistake that for agreement. And in fact, people never mistake it for agreement, but it does open them up and everything they say afterward is less extreme. So I have to follow up on this. So the questioning is, you know, that makes perfect sense because your questioning presumes that you're interested in the answer. It's more open. It's not accusatory. But a lot of people, particularly in an assertion world, right, which is what politics has become, it's all assertion, no longer persuasion. Asking them to explain the thinking behind their assertions makes people really nervous and gets their back up in certain mm. instances. So how do you avoid that? Mm. So you're talking here with more of a politician, somebody who's more seasoned with... Well, a politician or the the person with the, you know, hot take who is um, uh -huh. basically has only one sentence. I mean, in other words, can't explain why they feel so passionately what they feel, but but by golly, they feel it super passionately. I see, right. And if you say, well, like, play out the thinking behind that, or how does that go forward? The question actually can excite greater emotional response um, right. than a regular old rebuttal. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's going into it without any expectation of convincing the person, sadly. And that's very hard to let go of. The goal is more, look, this person is in thrall to high conflict right now. They won't always be, most likely, God willing. <laughs> Do I want to be there when an opening occurs? Something I call a saturation point in the book. But there are these shocks that people go through in life and in politics, right? Do I want to be there? Because you have to have people around you who tell you, yo, you are in a saturation point. Like, not in those words, but this, this is, we've lost you. You need to come home, you know? And, and if you don't have the relationship, if you sever the relationship, you can't, you can't be that person. So conspiracy theories, for just quick example, we know from the research have to do with disconnection, alienation, loneliness, right? So if you sever the people in your life who are believing conspiracy theories, if you estrange yourself, which, you know, sometimes that's the right thing, depending on the situation. But if you do, probably they're more alienated, isolated, and alone. Amanda Ripley's book is High Conflict. It's amazing. Get it. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, guys. Take care. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you, Emily, are enjoying the spring day, having a refreshing glass of sparkling wine on the porch. What are you going to be chattering about? I watched a movie last week that I thought was so good and I learned so much from. It's called Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution. It's a documentary from 2020. It's one of the Obama production company movies. And it's about the disability rights movement and its origins at this super interesting camp in the 1970s. There's this remarkable footage from the period of these teenagers, you know, with a range of disabilities, including like, you know, pretty serious cases of cerebral palsy, just having this amazingly hippie free um, time together. It is like, I mean, they're like celebrating, you know, cases of crabs. They're so glad to be like out and about together. I know, John, you're like, it's, it's, it has a nutty quality to it, but it really makes you miss hippies. I swear to God. And then some of them become real leaders in the fight for um, Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act and the American Disabilities Act. In particular, Judith Human emerges as such a powerful activist for this movement and also the number of other people um, 
I just thought it was amazing. I realized that I knew embarrassingly little about the disability rights movement, and I just thoroughly recommend this movie, Crip Camp. That sounds great. I, I, that, I feel strongly the same way that I know very little about this. It's one of the, along with, of course, gay and LGBTQ rights and civil rights, and it's like one of the big, huge movements, Native American rights, and yeah. I agree. Yeah, I don't know anything. It, I got. I got to watch that. Yeah, Thank it you. really. It just. Yeah, it's so important. Anyway, go watch it. John, what is your chatter? Um, my chatter is two quick things. One is that my uh, colleague Claire Fahi, who has been uh, working with me for three years, is now leaving and going to the New York Times, which is amazing. And. Um, and I just want to publicly thank her for all the help she's given me over three years. No one's going to say that's a lateral move, John. That is a that is, that is a distinct move up. She's, having to work with you and then going to the New York and Times. And she is yes, and she is <laughs> off to join the world of print and um, so and become a colleague of Emily's in 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 some kind Yay. of art organizational chart. So um, uh, congratulations to her and all of my gratitude. And then the second part of my chatter is just quickly that there was a um, there's a great piece in the Post by Dan Zach about the death of Gate 35X at the um, uh, at Washington's airport. And uh, if you you know, I, I am particularly hateful of Gate 35X because I had to travel there so, through that gate so many, so many, so many times. But it's just a lovely, light, beautifully written, fun uh, romp of a piece. Um, so uh, you should go read it by um, Dan Zach about the demise of Gate 35X. I talked last week to my CityCast Chicago colleague, Jacoby Cochran, the host of CityCast Chicago, and I promised you that I would talk this week about CityCast Denver. So as Gab Fest listeners know, we have a uh, daily Monday to Friday podcast and newsletter in Chicago and now in Denver Denver show went daily this week. Every morning at 6 a.m., you get a podcast and a newsletter. And the goal of these, these podcast newsletters is to make people care more about their cities. And as a podcast listener, you know that podcasts are really good at making people feel connection and making people feel part of a, part of a group, part of a community. And that's what we're trying to do. And this week, I wanted to give you a chance to hear from Bree Davies, who's the host of CityCast Denver, and to give you a sense about what her show, and what CityCast Denver sounds like. Brie, when I was a kid, on my childhood visit to Denver, I went to Elitch's amusement park, which I, if I remember, was an amusement park right in the city, and I got lost. I ran off away from my parents and was got lost, which I think is the only time as a kid I ever got lost. Um, I just saw in the CityCast Denver newsletter that Elitch's is about to reopen. Are you excited about that? <laughs> First, you should know, the thing with Elitch's is that it was a theme park at one point because it was purchased by Six Flags, but it is in competition directly with an amusement park here called Lakeside. So growing up here, you're either a Lakeside person or you're an Elitch's person. And they were both located on the north side at one point. The version of Elitch's that you went to probably was the one of where it is now, which is right in the middle of the city, which actually makes it, it endears me a little bit to Elitch's because where else do you see an amusement park in the middle of a city? But I myself am a lakeside person. So lakeside is sort of the working class version of Elitch's in terms of it's always been more affordable. 
It didn't have, you know, like licensed characters in it. It was just an old school amusement park. And it's been the same for over 100 years. It's on this beautiful lake, Lake Rhoda, which is um, named after Rhoda Krasner, who is still the owner of Lakeside. She took over the park from her father, who was the second owner ever of this 100 plus year old amusement park and she can be found wandering through the park because she still manages it and still runs it but I've never been able to talk to her she's a notoriously very private person which adds to me to the lore of it so I'm really I'm really at at my heart I'm a lakeside person I love the cyclone the wooden roller coaster I love the spider the Rocco planes it has all of these really incredible sort of old school rides and it kind of borders on this carnival-esque feeling but it also it has this beautiful architecture within it. So if you're a Beaux-Arts person or you love mid-mod century architecture, it's the place to go. I like the idea of living on a lake or working on a lake that's named after you. (laughs) I would like to live or work on lake plots. That would be great. Or Lake David. Yeah, her dad renamed the lake after her. I can't remember the name before, but he renamed it after her when he purchased the entire plot. So That's great. Thanks, Bree. So check out... CityCast Denver by going to citycast.fm slash Denver. It's a daily podcast every weekday morning, 6 a.m. Mountain Time, that Bree Davies hosts. Listeners, woof, listener chatters, so satisfying every week. Please tweet them to us at at SlateGabFest, some work of culture, movie, song, historical episode that you find wonderful, horrifying, strange, and most of all, worthy of discussion at your own cocktail party. This week's listener chatter comes from Paul John Rudoy. Let's hear from Paul John Rudoy. Hi, Emily, David, and John. This is Paul John Rudoy, and I'm a huge fan of the Political Gab Fest, and I have one of my favorite internet finds of all time for you. While on a public domain binge, I found James Redding Ware's Passing English of the Victorian Era, which is a dictionary from 1909, full of old English slang and phrase. And I laughed so hard I cried at most of these entries, but it also reminded me how fleeting language can be. Many of these words have been lost to the sands of time, yet I do think that we could bring some of these back. I mean, how fun would it be to be referencing having fun with someone as Nancy Narking? Or if you're with your favorite drunken uncle during Thanksgiving, to remind them not to be in our farfanarf. As far as I'm concerned, it seems like a pretty bang up to the elephant strategy to me. <laughs> That's awesome. That's excellent. Um, I was watching The Irregulars, which is a which is a great Netflix series, uh, sort of fan fiction of Sherlock Holmes. Um, and so Victorian era, and a woman in it, this awful woman, said at one point, she said, "Well, shit in your hat and punch it." which was an expression that I had heard, but had no idea what it meant. And so I what feel like- What a mess that would create. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why would you want to do any of that at all? And it, it, it's supposed to mean something totally obvious, that that's what, that that's what it means, is someone you know presenting a, a piece of common knowledge that's, um, that's not as important as the person presenting it suggests it is. But like, how does that really? connect with the thing? It's, anyway- uh, Victorian expressions are very weird. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. Gabrielle Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. Dear elephants, bang up on the elephants. For <laughs> Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. 
Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, I am now half-vaxxed. Uh, I think John and Emily are, are at least half-vaxxed. Maybe they're vaxxed. Which one did you get? Uh, Moderna. Can I just say that you only have one of your shots, but if you're two weeks out, that you have most of the protection? Yes. The question today on Slate Plus is, do vaxxed people have a moral obligation to restart the economy, to be, go to restaurants and movies and bars, and to gather in indoor spaces together in ways that will help uh, small businesses and communities and, uh, or not? Or is there, no, is there no moral obligation to, to participate in, in restoring the world that we once had or the new version of the world that we once had? So is the idea that the moral obligation flows from the responsibility to restart the economy? Like you're one of the people who can go to a restaurant, so you're supposed to help save the restaurant? I think it's twofold. It's yes, it's it's a uh, you have a moral. Do you have a moral obligation? Mean, I don't have an answer to this yet. I'm hopefully, I have one. The end. Do you have an obligation to be an economic engine for these places that are suffering? Now that you can be an economic engine and if you have the resources to be an economic engine, should you be an economic engine? That's number one. Number two is, should you, like, part, also part of society is just the, the sense that there's activity going on. It was a very nice in Washington this weekend. There was a beautiful weekend, and there was clearly people were just, like, kind of giddy to be out in the spring, and it was nice to see everybody out there, uh, mostly masked. It was nice to see everybody out there. And is there, a, like, your duty just to be out in society so that society kind of starts to heal itself and re, we can regather together and, and have the connections that we need for a healthy world. So to, so an economic obligation and then kind of a social communal obligation, I would say. And so how do we balance that with the fact that we're in this have and have not world of vaccines, at least, right? Like we're in this very awkward interim stage in which they're like, truly are these two classifications. And, you know, they're starting to be like vaccine passports in New York and, you know, vaccinated only sections at like some sports event somewhere or other. Like that, right? I mean, so I, I, I'm sympathetic to what you're talking about, but I also am not sure in this moment of haves and have nots whether I feel okay about doing things that everybody can't do at a moment in which everybody's not vaccinated because like there just hasn't been enough time. So what's our time window? Because it, because that was just a snippet from our slate plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a member today. With the lucky land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.